You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. This is the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm Victor, and joining me is William Gallagher. Hello. Who cares about William Gallagher? You've got an interview. I want to hear this interview. Who's the interview? All right. It's exciting. Before we get into our interview with Fraser Spears, I want to talk to you about the September 10th Apple event. Now, the name of this event on September 10th is called By Innovation Only, which is, of course, a play on the words By Invitation Only. But it's, it's, it's sort of a playful form and kind of ways makes me think of when Phyllis Schiller said years ago, talking about a MacBook Pro along about 2012, 2013, can't innovate my ass. But here we are, and I think this one is going to be good. I'm, I'm really optimistic. By Innovation Only is a neat title for an event. Now, obviously, we've been talking about this in the past, and we're going to get iOS 13 and iPadOS 13 and Catalina and tvOS and watchOS, and that's going to be epic. We're also going to get new iPhones, which could be iPhone 11 or they could be iPhone Pro. They could be named all kinds of things, but the important detail is that every single phone model is going to get an additional camera to the amount of cameras it has now. That is, the OLED models, the 10s and 10s Max, are going to have three cameras, and the 10R model is going to have two cameras. The utility here is probably adding a wide-angle lens and probably adding a telephoto lens to the 10R so that we can get that kind of depth. There's also been some speculation around computational photography, because obviously that's one of the things that Google prides themselves on and Google users love about uh, about the Pixel. The things you can expect are going to be CPU upgrades. They're going to be specification upgrades. They're going to be performance for video. They're going to be performance for machine learning, things like this. Uh, probably better face ID. One of the rumors suggested that we would have Touch ID under the screen. I personally don't really count on that one happening. Another rumor suggested that you could wirelessly charge your AirPods with your iPhone, which would be interesting, but I don't know if it's going to happen. The The thing to think about here is we've had all these rumors. There have also been rumors about updated iPad Pros and regular iPads and rumors about a MacBook Pro 16-inch. I'm not convinced we're going to see those kinds of devices at this event. I think what will happen is that we'll have this event followed by an event in October or so to cover the rest of these devices. Whatever happens, we're going to be here and have all the information for you. Whatever happens, we're going to be here and have all the information for you. We'll be live streaming the event, and you can see it right here on Apple Insider. This is, We were fortunate enough to get time with Fraser Spears. Fraser is the uh, the head teacher or principal, if you will, of um, Cedar School of Excellence. And what's unique about this is that in, in years past, he's done one-to-one rollouts of iPads to students. And this year, for the first time ever, they have they have they have mothballed all those iPads, and and historically they move them on to people who can make good use of them, and they've shifted to Chromebook. I know you're staggered. I'm just a gog. I've actually heard this guy often over the years. I think he's really interesting. But I thought he was particularly interesting on how he used iPads in education. So I'm really I'm keen to hear his reasons for this. Well, I just, just to tease it a little bit, I've been following him. And even since we've had the interview, he's been posting on Twitter about how it's gone. And one thing that he posted this morning was that he had – had a number of students uh, submit their maths and decimal problems and answers through Google Classroom, and Google Classroom auto-marked it for him, so he didn't have to go through manually and grade all of the maths questions. And that alone, he's like, sold, done, good. <laughs> right, that's impressive. As long as it's you know, great with an answer. I mean, not you know, if, if if actually doing maths was torture as a kid, right? Imagine how much torture it was for the teacher who had to go through and try and grade the thing. Well, so here we are. <laughs> uh, I think it's interesting. So. Let's let's get on because there's a lot more interesting about that. So without any further ado, Fraser Spears. So welcome to this segment of the Apple Insider Podcast. Joining me is Fraser Spears, uh, head teacher or principal as we'd say in North America of the uh, the Cedar School of Excellence. Thanks for having me. 
for, for years, for ages, I've watched you on Twitter and on your blog talk about technology in schools and the role that it can play. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for, for many years, you had a one-to-one iPad rollout going on. Can you tell me a little bit about how you began that and, and uh, really what led to that? Yeah, so I'm happy to go into that detail. It was uh, we started in 2010. So 2010, as you know, was the year that the iPad came out in the first place. And for years before that, honestly, I had been looking for some kind of tool that would enable us to increase access in the school classroom to computers. You know, access to the internet, access to you know creative tools like even just like word processors, presentation tools, you know, drawing tools, whatever, and. Obviously, at that time, laptops were both, you know, very heavy, very expensive. Um, the battery didn't last very long, and you know, they didn't have a lot of capacity for the things we wanted to do. So, you know, doing a one-to-one laptop program was out of the question financially for our school. And it, we had looked at things like uh, going one-to-one with, say, an iPod video, for example. That was a thing that some people were doing. Uh, back in the sort of early days of iTunes U, where universities were recording videos of lectures and putting them out on iTunes through iTunes at the time, uh, so people that was could about download two thousand five, two thousand six timeframe. Oh five, oh six, that that kind of time. Yeah, so we we looked at that and disregarded that possibility. We had also been looking at netbooks, if you remember netbooks, um, and those were sort of small PC laptops that sometimes ran Linux, other times ran Windows. Uh, which cost around about 200 to $250, £250. Uh, and we looked at them, but they were so small and so cramped, we didn't feel that was the right tool either. So along came the iPad, and that was we were kind of in the way of looking for something, and that was a tool that seemed to make the most sense both financially and in terms of the feature set as well. So we, we, we rolled out a one-to-one iPad program in August of 2010. And as far as I know, we were the first school in the world to do a whole school one-to-one iPad program back then. And we kept that going from 2010 through to this summer. And in summer 2019, we made the decision to switch to Chromebook from iPad. So we've we've finished our one-to-one iPad program for the moment, and we have purchased a set of Chromebooks for the school, and we're going to be on Chromebook for the next four years. All right, and I'm going to ask some questions about that in just a moment. But just... Sure. Pedagogically, what are the kinds of things that students learn uh, or, or learned using the iPads? Mm-hmm. I, I think what something really changed over the course of that time for us with the iPad. When we began, nobody knew what an iPad was. And the first job that we had with the iPad was to explain to people that the iPad was a valid computer. And that, you know, <laughs> that, that job continued for the whole time we were doing iPads, to be honest with you. But we we were looking at um, just not not so much that there was something necessarily new that the students would learn with the iPad, but it was more that they had access to tools, right? So sometimes when you're going to schools and they're doing iPad programs, you'll see that they're very focused on content. So they, they've maybe purchased iPads and they've also probably usually done a deal with Pearson or some other company like that to, to get a specific curriculum onto their iPads. Whereas for us, it was never really about putting putting content out to the children through the device. It was more that we were still teaching what we were teaching, but we were now teaching it with another tool in the classroom as well. So the the computer, it was available. It wasn't mandatory. We didn't say, okay, everybody's got to use the computer all the time. The The only rule we ever had was you use the computer where it's useful, and when it's not useful, you do something else. And that was pretty much all we had um, as a rule in our school. So that was that was kind of the, the pedagogy behind it. And I suppose in a way, what we were looking for was we were looking for, um, how can I sort of explain this? Does it help or, or how, how do we change the way we learn things like history if we also have access to computers and a lot more information than we would normally have? Does it enable us to uh, increase the amount of resources we can look at or the variations we can look at or the amount of source material that we can look at. And there's some interesting observations to be made about our experience of that over 10 years, but that was kind of the core idea. It wasn't just that we were trying to change the teaching and learning or put out specific content, but more just to put an extra tool in the classroom. 
you've moved to Chromebook mm -hmm. and what were the, the reasons that led you to that decision? Well, I think there was there was one thing that really began the process, and there was a number of kind of extra weight that came in after after we started thinking about it. I I had been tracking Chromebooks for pretty much as long as we had been doing iPads. Now, the the original Chromebook, the CR forty eight Chromebook, only came out in the December of twenty ten. So when the iPad first was one of the computers we were looking at, the Chromebook didn't even exist. So there's there's just a slight timing issue there in terms of. Why didn't we do Chromebooks at the start? Well, the answer is Chromebooks didn't exist when we started doing this program. Um, but over the years, we we had obviously invested very heavily in Apple technologies. We had we had looked had Apple TV in the classroom. We had, but more more than just the hardware, we had spent a lot of time building on iTunes U, and iTunes U had as we talked about earlier, it had started off as a, a video distribution service for university lectures. And then later on, it became a kind of courseware product. So you could make courses, you could put materials and assignments into iTunes U and so on. But what seemed to have happened over the last three or four years is that Apple's investment and efforts in those kind of education app software applications has just stopped dead. And if you look at, if you go back to the, uh, the iTunes U page on the App Store, for example, you can look at the version history of iTunes U. You can see that over the last three, three and a half years, iTunes U has had virtually no feature updates. And I think I'm right in saying, even today, iTunes U still doesn't support iOS 9 style split screen multitasking. And we're about to get iOS 13. So it's clear to me that whatever Apple's doing in education, they're not investing in iTunes U. And that was something that, well, first of all, we started to notice it, and then it started to become a major pain point in our deployment. And all the time we were looking over the over the fence, if you like, at Google Classroom and saying, I wish we had this feature, I wish we had that feature. And, you know, it started off with things like, I wish you could put a, uh, an assignment to your class on a schedule. In Google Classroom, you can do that. In iTunes, you can't. And then uh, we started looking for other features, you know, being able to put out a post to some students in the class, but not all. Being able to automatically send emails to parents about homework. And, and these features were just not coming to iTunes U, but they were all there in the classroom. And eventually there just kind of came such a weight of things that we wanted that we couldn't, couldn't or weren't getting through iTunes U that that became the impetus to start really thinking seriously about switching over to Chromebook and once we started looking at it, uh, the reasons kind of just started to snowball from there. And there's more to it than just uh, classroom is better than iTunes U at this time. But that was that was how we kind of got started with thinking about it, really. I guess the way that I've sort of thought about it is that Apple wants to encourage the use of specific tools for creation and things like this. And they're less focused on, on classroom management, where Google Classroom is, is strongly focused on the things that you said about assignments and turning things in through classroom and, and getting those kinds of messages sent out. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think over the past few years, since uh, since iTunes U maybe was starting to become de-emphasized a little bit, Apple has gone heavily into creating materials and essentially promoting a kind of pedagogical approach that you know reasonable people might agree or disagree as to whether it's the right thing to do in schools. But I, I think that... Apple has, they very much looked at, you know, what are we already good at? And then they've put all their wood behind what they're already good at rather than trying to expand to support everything that schools need. And what I mean by that is they've, they created um, Swift Playgrounds, which is a great application, and the Learn to Code 1 and 2 programs, which are also wonderful documents and excellent teaching materials. And then they, start, they went into this material called Everyone Can Create, and what this was was instead of um, instead of an engineering effort, shall we say, it was more of a kind of documentation and materials effort. So they were creating lesson plans and resource guides for teachers and so on. And to a certain extent, to be fair, um, putting features into pages and keynote that schools wanted and needed. And I think they've done quite a good job of that. But they they just were not addressing the kind of school administration aspect of it. So. How do you move files around? How do you, without having to copy them, uh, how do you collaborate with people? All of those kind of things that you see are very strong in the Google world. Apple had made some efforts towards them, but they were missing the kind of overall picture, I think, which was the idea that um, 
you know, in, in G Suite for schools, you've got a whole situation where it's, uh, um, you know, the data is all there and the identity is all there and it's all one system that people can work within. Whereas with iTunes U and, and iCloud as a whole, it never quite got to that point for schools. It was it was always a lot more fragmented than that. Yeah, and collaboration for the, the iWork applications has always been kind of an afterthought. Yeah, I mean, the, the feature works, right? But the problem is that they don't own your identity in the way that Google does. And I don't mean that in the sort of sinister sense of owning you that people talk about Google, but I just mean, wh- where does the corporate directory live? And I'm, I'm sort of speaking enterprise talk here at the moment, but you know, if I type in my name or, or a colleague's name, does their email address just pop up there automatically? And in G Suite, that kind of thing does happen because they're all members of the same domain. Whereas with Apple, it's never quite gotten to that level of integration. So it's always been a little bit clunky to try and get those kind of things set up. Yeah, way back in 2005, I was using sub-Etha edit in, in my yeah, classes so that yeah. people could collaboratively edit. And when Google came in with, uh, with, with Google Docs, that was such a revelation for us at the time. Yeah, But you, you mentioned how people talk about Google in a sinister fashion. And mm-hmm. I, I feel like there's a lot of apprehension around Google in education. Um, can we talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of apprehension around all technology companies at the moment. But I think if I may be so bold as to venture this, that I think a lot of it's politically motivated and it's nothing to do with the technology itself. That, you know, the fallout of the the Trump election in America, I think there's an element of, um, you know, Twitter enabled Donald Trump, therefore all technology is bad. And we're really, really in danger of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and all of this stuff. Um, now, of course there have been, I'm not here to defend Google's privacy practices or anything like that, but I think we as a, as a world, to be honest with you, have to make a decision as to, like, do we want computers to do stuff for us or do we want everything to be private? And and that's a trade-off that different people can make different ways. And I think it's probably fair to say that reasonable people might reasonably disagree about whether or not Apple's stance is the right one or Google's stance is the right one or there's maybe a middle ground in between. Uh, I personally think that Apple's stance in a K-12 setting is perhaps a little too restrictive. I think that there are perfectly legitimate grounds for a school to be able to access and monitor more of the computer experience than Apple maybe enables and allows. Uh, whereas in the Google world, we get access to a whole lot more stuff. And it's it, that becomes a matter of policy for every school as to exactly what they do with that. But there is certainly more straightforward access in a managed situation with Google than with Apple. Um, however, the thing that since we moved to Chromebooks and I started talking about it on Twitter, the one thing that has become very sort of clear and obvious to me is that absolutely nobody understands that G Suite for Education is under a completely different set of privacy policy and practices than the consumer Google account, if you like. So, you know, G Suite accounts are not tracked for advertising, for example. Um, You have uh, a lot of insight and control into what happens to student data and advertising isn't shown alongside, um, alongside the Google products in school. And it's, you know, it's just handled in a different way. And, And it's worth having a look at that there. If you can, you can search for, you know, G Suite EDU privacy policy, and you can find there's a whole mini site about how how data is handled in the education product. Yeah, and that is something yeah. I was going to bring up. I'm so glad you did. Um, one of the things that I found when I was looking to it is that Google has committed to having a third party audit them to to ensure that they're honoring that policy. Yeah. I was going to say that's also part of GDPR, um, the, the data protection law in the EU, is that in principle – organizations that use these companies as processors should be able to audit them in some way. And the the only sensible way that's doable at scale is for for a third party that's trusted by both sides to do it. I mean, no no school that I know of has got the technical understanding or capabilities to go and audit a Google data center, for example. It's just, 
there's a level yeah, much less the employee resources to dedicate to it <laughs> exactly i mean how, how would my little school go and audit a google data center to the point where we could uh, you know so so there are these structures in place to sort of manage that and i think um google is very straightforward about their levels of compliance and you know i think a lot of this what happens a lot is that a lot of loose language is used right so people will will now sort of attack me online and they'll say things like oh you know are you are you are you therefore happy with google selling all your children's data to advertisers and if you break that down you say what exactly does that phrase mean you know is it the case that i if i wanted to advertise on google could i go and ask them um, for a download of a copy of some random individual's contents of their Google Drive? No, obviously not, right? Google's, in, in terms of actual security, I, I feel that Google's very highly incentivized to ensure that um, people don't just get random access to your data. Now, there's legal aspects to that as well in terms of what governments are enabled to do, and that's a whole complicated story that's probably worth getting into at some point, but maybe a little more detail than we want to talk about tonight. But in terms of... Um, letting advertisers have access to data it's not that's obviously not what happens right you can't just you can't just buy the contents of somebody's google drive it's not it's not as simplistic as that and i think people need to just speak a little more precisely when they talk about privacy and and security and not confuse those two things because they are different as well so they are one of the things that i was concerned about that it wasn't exactly clear to me about maybe you have some more insight into is you know, I, I feel reasonably certain that a student's email and a student's Google Drive, Docs, Slides, Sheets, things that re reside yeah. within that Google suite for education are fairly private and fairly secure. Yeah. But I, I start to be concerned when there are other services that use Google single sign-on and students mm -hmm. use their Google account, their student account to, to single sign-on to other services within education, because I'm not sure that their privacy policies are nearly as good or as stringent as what Google might offer. No, you're, you're absolutely 100% right there. And that, that's a, a major area, I think, of training for schools and also for, of, for control for school admins. So when you deploy a Chromebook suite, it is actually possible to control that. So I believe you can, um, you can whitelist individual services that you want to allow uh, you can blacklist services there, is, there are controls for that um, we're not using a lot of those kind of services just yet but it's certainly something that I do with data protection training with our staff is to say look you need to and again in the EU under GDPR one should actually complete what's called a privacy impact assessment if you want to use additional services so we've completed some of them for for various things that we use um, but I'm, I'm always very cautious to say to our teachers, look, if you want your kids in the class to sign up for some other account, you need to check that out separately from just the, the Google core. You know, it's not, it's not the same thing by any means. It's, you're absolutely right. Right. And even if it has sign on with Google, yeah. it's not the same. It's, no. it's got its own policy and yeah. you have to look and decide if that policy is right. If there's even auditing for that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, my other question, I think, in this kind of area comes down to extensions that people add on. Mm -hmm. You know, one of them that, that was used in my daughter's school is called Hapara Highlights. Yeah. Are you familiar with it at all? I'm not specifically familiar with it, but I suspect it's pretty similar to one we use called GoGuardian, which is uh, there's a GoGuardian teacher, which allows sort of classroom monitoring. And then there's a GoGuardian admin, which is a web filtering product as well. It sounds similar. So yeah. the the way that Hapara was used in my daughter's school is uh, for monitoring student behavior and stu what, what browser tabs are open on the Chromebook, mm -hmm. and also to assign quizzes and in-class uh, assessments yep. and, and sort of monitor as those are being taken. And uh, I was, I'm a little... I'm, I'm a little scared about that one personally, just because it also has among its admin options, the ability to monitor the microphone and camera for each Chromebook. Okay. Yep. And, uh, you know, of course the ability, when, once you turn that on, you also have the ability whether or not you want to be able to view them when the student is not at school, right? If the yeah. Chromebooks go home. Yeah. And uh, I've, I've never gotten answers that satisfied me from the school when I've asked about this. Mm -hmm. Um. 
you know, it, it feels to me as though there's something about a school provided Chromebook versus a personal provided Chromebook where we're providing a personal one and being asked to load this, this surveillance where onto it. Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead. Yeah. I, 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 I agree with your concern there. I mean, our, our model is that the school owns the Chromebook. We provide the Chromebook and we install in our case, go guardian on it. Now, just because a school is buying into a particular technology stack doesn't mean that a school themselves don't have to have a very serious reflection process about um, about what they're doing with the technology and how that's all working out. And in Go Guardian, for example, one of the things you can do there is you, you can monitor a pupil's screen. And you can actually do it remotely across the internet as well. But as a matter of school policy, I've set it up, and you know, our teachers have control of that. But you can actually go guardians quite nicely designed in that the school administrator can limit the hours of operation of that. So I've said it and I've clearly made this known to the students as well, that that only operates between 8 a.m. and 4 p.m., the the hours in which you would reasonably be in school and not at the weekends. So they can have a degree of confidence that um, when they go home, they're not going to be monitored constantly. However, the web filtering component um the web filtering component does operate 24 7 so whatever they're searching at home uh, that will be filtered and obviously there's a there's a positive aspect of that which is protection against inappropriate content but then it's all there's also an element of um uh you know we, we can call it surveillance where if we want you know it, it's interesting that the balance is maybe you know 10 years ago everybody wanted school web filtered completely so that nothing nothing bad could ever be seen uh, and now we're talking about that is is that does that constitute surveillance or is that a school's appropriate oversight if you like pastoral oversight on on computer use and i think there's there are good arguments either way but having having dealt with situations in the past where you know um People have intervened on cases, potential cases of a, online abuse. Uh, I've, and myself, not in my school, but through other organizations, identified situations of people potentially being groomed online, all of these young people being groomed online. Um, and I'm not just throwing those out as, as bogeymen to say it's okay to do anything you want, but these are real situations, and that this really happens. This isn't just made up, and, and I, I can't be a fundamentalist on this in the same it, it way that some like people are. It seems like a hard balance to strike. Yeah. Oh, it is. It is. And, you know, in some ways, I would I would like to give young people more privacy. However, I think the world has changed since we started this conversation. And it's really important to think about this because if you, if you want to wind back the clock to 2010 or 2005 or a time like that, it was often the case that, a computer provided or access to a computer provided by a school was often a young person's only access to the internet. And the one and only way to get on the internet was through school. Whereas today, many, many, many of those kids have got a smartphone access, multiple computers at home, uh, and, and the landscape has very much changed. So I'm not naive in this, and I don't think that because we are we're watching what the young people are doing or filtering their internet that they are in no way ever seeing anything bad on the internet. In fact, I know they're not, you know, it's <laughs> what we're doing is we're displacing the questionable activity from the, the, the supervised computer to the unsupervised computer. And that's, that's something that parents need to be aware of as well. You know, I can only make guarantees about that one computer and in times past, that was the only computer in a young person's life, and today it's not. And it's something we're always given a message about at our school is, you know, parents have to take responsibility for the other devices. You know, we'll help with this one, and we'll teach about behavior, and we'll look for people to be supportive of each other online, but there are other computers, and that's just the reality of the world now. do you think is the role of the school in, in sort of teaching these boundaries or expectations about, about privacy and about uh, security and what secure practices are? 
Uh, yeah, I, there's a couple of good questions there. You know, there's there's a privacy question and then there's a security question. And I think we we can be very clear about what the security questions are. You know, we can teach about good passwords. We can teach about firewalls. We can we can teach and we should teach about all these things locking your screen and having encryption turned on in your device. And I, I teach all of these things because I'm a computer science teacher and I teach all these things from a, from a technical perspective, but I also try and as much as possible also teach them from a kind of ethics perspective as well. Um, and what I mean by that is that often I, d- I feel that if I teach about the techniques that are being used to manipulate you, it really eliminates a lot of their power if that makes sense. And uh, quite often Once I'll you teach... pull back the curtain, it, it exactly. really reveals and yeah. defuses what's going on. Yeah. yeah. I'll quite often teach you about, you know, the psychological tricks that are used to get you addicted to video games or social media or something. And once people know that that's happening to them, it, it, they can start to see, you know, behind the curtain, if you like. And, and I think just teaching that way is often quite helpful. Yeah. And as with many other things, you know, if you think about all the all the other areas of risk that young people get involved in. We have, as Western societies, I suppose, we have often taken the line that education is better than uh, prevention. So if you think about drugs education, for example, or alcohol or sex education, or even road safety, you know, we don't don't prevent children from walking across the road. I mean, I, I say that, but, you know, there's a whole body of work being done now to say that, Actually, we are preventing young people from walking across the road and it's causing them severe problems in, in terms of their general resilience towards life as well. So actually, maybe we, are, maybe we have taken it too far. But that's a, that's a conversation for another day, I suppose. This, this rollout was probably a massive undertaking because you, you're coming from one whole system of managing and setting up user mm-hmm. accounts and cloning devices and having devices be charged and things like that, just the practical issues involved with yeah. changing over. Um, You've only been doing this for about you know the, the, a week, right? This is this mm-hmm. is a new operation. Yeah. Um, what are the things that you're encountering so far? What are you finding? Um, well, we're, we're we're noticing a number of things. Uh, one is that uh, I'm noticing a change in in people's attitudes towards the device, and I sort of explain what I mean by that. Like I said, when we started in 2010, nobody knew what an iPad was and nobody knew what it was good for. So we very much took, I personally really, rather I say we, but really I took the view that the iPad is a computer. We should use the iPad for computer type things. So we use it for pages and keynote and all these different tools. And what happened in those 10 years was that children went from having no other iPad in their life except the one that we gave them to having the one that we gave them plus at least another one at home, if not sometimes two, and those iPads at home were being used more or less exclusively as entertainment devices. So I have always been really influenced by that Steve Jobs quote, which uh, I believe is not apocryphal, which is when he talked about making the computer a bicycle for the mind. And that was, that was always kind of what I wanted to do with the computer in school. And for some people, that absolutely happened. You know, I, I saw some of our young people who, you know, were were curious and able young people, and I give them a computer, and it's like rocket fuel to their intellect and their their level of you know global knowledge and cultural understanding and and insight and the ability to just know new things is incredibly powerful. But at the same time, I gave the the iPad to other people, and they just saw it as a TV and a games device. And why that distinction is the way it is, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I suspect it probably has something to do with sort of levels of IQ, perhaps, that more able people, you know, the uh, phrase in the Bible that says, uh, to those who have more shall be given, and from those who have little, everything they have shall be taken away. You know, I, that sort of sticks in my mind as, as a thought about the impact of the computer on people and, and for some of those younger people or, or those people who sort of saw it as a TV and a games machine, what I've noticed is that the Chromebook, having gone away from the iPad towards the Chromebook, we've started to see more of a work-orientated attitude towards it. 
And I think that's partly, you know, on the configuration that I've done that I've, I've blocked a number of entertainment type services that we didn't quite have access to block before. Because again, if you think about that aspect, web filtering on the iPad is a privacy issue for Apple. You know, you don't quite have the same access there. And, and Apple's privacy stance is not necessarily helping everybody. And it's not, it's not an unalloyed good thing that I can't filter out, um, effectively and precisely web services that I don't want people to get access to on right on the iPad device. I have to do it at the network level and that doesn't always carry the same weight. So that's an interesting issue. But I think also we're just not giving them the same kind of tool that they use for at home for entertainment. So I think there's a bit of confusion, particularly with younger users. Is the iPad for work or is the iPad for fun? Because we are saying it's for work and home is saying it's for fun. And I think now that we've got a clear distinction between the, the fun device, which is the iPad, and the work device, which is the Chromebook, I'm starting to see a, a distinction in how children approach it, and they approach it in a more business-like manner, at least for now. And I'm not saying that's necessarily going to continue. I can also already see in my filtering logs people trying to turn it back into a games <laughs> machine. Uh, <laughs> but you know what? I'm equal to the task. So we'll see how that goes. I was, I was sort of wondering how much the physical keyboard played a role in that. You know, just by the virtue of having a keyboard, it feels like this is a, a work device. I certainly noticed that with younger users. So we're talking sort of 9, 10, 11 years old, that they felt extremely grown up to be getting a laptop. And the older kids, they looked at that, you know, our 15, 16-year-olds, they looked at it more as an efficiency thing. They thought, right, you know, I've got a lot of writing to do for my exams. Uh, this is going to help me get that writing done. Great, fine, whatever. But the younger kids, they sort of felt like they were sort of stepping into daddy's shoes a little bit and getting a shot of a, a grown-up's computer because they've got a proper keyboard and it's black and it, it's sort of businessy, <laughs> you know, which is kind of fun to see. Well, this this mirrors my yeah. own experience with my own daughters. You know, I, I, they, they've yeah. had iPads from 2010, thereabouts. And uh, when I had to get one of them, the Chromebook, it, it really took off. And then, of course, I... I graduated her to a Mac and the other one has the Chromebook now. Mm -hmm. And they're both, they're both, uh, the, the second daughter really still does use her iPad quite a lot. Um, years and years and years ago, I had a G4 iMac set up that she would just type into. Mm. And uh, it was a wondrous thing for me because she was nonverbal at that time. She didn't speak at all, mm -hmm. but we discovered that she was typing these, these long, long documents into the iMac. And, uh, and she kept doing that with the iPad. Um, that, that's an interesting effect that we, we've also seen that kind of thing where at a given developmental stage, children can often type more on the computer, or produce more on the computer than they could if they were writing or speaking it. And uh, I don't quite know what to do with that, but I think it is true. Well, I think one of the things that you're already doing addresses that really well. You know, I, I had to negotiate and, and plead with the schools to allow that daughter to type in school. Mm -hmm. And you, you've just obviated that whole problem by making sure everyone has that resource. Yes, and it takes away the stigma of being the, the child who has the computer. You know, if, if you were to go into many other schools, you know, you, you would know the children who had additional support needs by the fact that they had a computer and everybody else doesn't. And, and you know, the standardization aspect of it, I think, is important for, uh, for that point of view as well. And we're able to you know, do exams on, on computer and things as well. So that's, that's something that really helps. Does this change your whole uh, rollout for, for other devices around it? You know, you had Apple TVs in the classrooms. Are they now all becoming uh, Chromecast? Uh, no, we have actually gone back. We've abandoned wireless display technology entirely, and we've gone back to wires. Um, we, we'd, actually, <laughs> we'd actually done that before we decided to go Chromebook because Apple TV – on a busy network, just never achieved the level of reliability that teachers need. And teachers need a very high degree of reliability. And, and if you, uh, as a technologist, cause a teacher's lesson to fail because the technology is not up to it, then you're going to hear about that <laughs> pretty quickly. <laughs> and um, I always remember my first job, uh, I worked with an older guy who was a sysadmin and had been for years. And, and he, he said this one thing to me that I've never forgotten. He said, you've got to drink coffee with the people that use your systems. And I've never forgotten that because he said, you know, if you don't meet these people socially and in other situations, 
you're never going to hear about the pain that you're causing them. And you need to know what's going on because otherwise you're going to be, your name is going to be trashed and you're not going to hear about it in time. So I've always thought about that in school. And that was the problem we had with Apple TV was that we just never got the level of reliability that you could just go through your presentation. The convenience was great, but the reliability was poor and we never got it right. So even before we went Chromebook, we had, we had pretty much retired all of our Apple TVs. I think we have one or two still in the school, but uh, most of them are gone now. Well, this has been delightful. I have really enjoyed having you speak with me. Yeah, it's, it's been my pleasure. I think it's this is kind of the first opportunity I've had to speak to anybody about it since we since we started the Chromebook Roller. I think the the, the overall sentiment I think is has been pretty positive. Um, certainly very positive in our school, and I think that um, a lot of people who have looked at my blog and have looked at things that I've read and, and said about it, not a lot of people have come back at me with either. Um, pedagogical arguments or um, really even technical arguments. And what a lot of people just throw at me is, is you know, a half-baked privacy argument, you know. And I think that I've spent a lot of time on Twitter just typing out, you do realize that the EDU system is under a different privacy policy and, and leaving it at that. But uh, I think... I think it's going to be a significant change. And I, there's one thing, if I can just add, that we didn't quite get to with with what we were saying about the transition was that it's not just the, the sort of lack of features in iTunes U that caused us to change, but there's also a, a forward-looking aspect to it as well. And, and what I think, one of the things that influenced my thinking about this was that as teachers in our school, we have really adopted Google Drive and and um, document sharing and collaboration and all these kind of things. And for maybe the past three or four years, we've really been going very hard in that direction. And I found it to be an incredible efficiency saving, the, the kind that you could never go back from. And I was thinking to myself, you know, we do all this as teachers, but we don't do any of it with the students. The students are stuck in this world where you've got your iPad and on your iPad is your files. And if something goes wrong with that computer, your files are at risk. And we as teachers, we're working in the cloud. doesn't matter what computer we're on. You know, we're getting this great collaboration. There's a lot of efficiency and it's going really quickly and it's working really well. Why are we not doing that for the kids? Because if that's already part of our job, surely it's going to be the future of theirs. And that's the other side of, of making the switch from the Apple world to the Google world is that I think Apple has kind of, I think perhaps missing the boat is too strong a word, but certainly lagging behind in terms of being cloud first. Uh, and in my more cynical moments, I feel that sometimes Apple's privacy stance is a little self-serving in that it's a form of sort of fear, uncertainty and doubt targeted against people who are good at something that Apple aren't good at. And that's that just grates a little bit with me. And I've been an Apple guy since you know the mid-80s, but some of the things I hear and the way I look at what Apple are doing versus what other companies are doing, but also the way Apple then start to talk about it, it's not always clear to me that what they're saying and what they're doing and what they're actually working on are all matching up in the same way. So, so that's just another aspect that's worth thinking about in terms of what motivated us to change just from, from the iPad to the Google world as well. It, it seems to me that practically there's... So in the old days, when you were using a computer, you had to intentionally save things, Yeah. right? And, and you know, I, I was reminded of this again the other day when someone said that the save icon looked more like a vending machine with a coffee cup and mm. you know, where the, uh, where the <laughs> yeah. slot is. Why, why is there a vending machine in my icons here because who knows what a floppy disk is anymore but indeed the the google approach is save everything nothing should ever be lost you should have revisions you should yeah. be able to go back through revisions and apple in some ways is is still very much in this you have to intentionally save or you have mm -hmm. to intentionally back up or if you're backing up to icloud mm -hmm. it happens once when you're connected to power on wi-fi and not doing anything where Google's a little bit more forward in, in this, that, that everything is saved all the time so that if you drop the Chromebook at a river, which was the example they used at Google I.O. when they introduced them, yeah, you just grab another one. Yeah. I mean, I, I did that today in my school. You know, a, a boy came in with his Chromebook, not charged because he'd been ill all weekend. And I just said, you know, okay, give me that one, plug it in here, take this other one, go and do your school day and swap them back at the end of the day. 
you know, that's a powerful model. And the iPad just, in, in some ways, you know, I, I remember watching WWDC this year and I thought they are making the absolute perfect iteration of the last generation of computing. You know, they're making the best ever local state, locally installed applications, operating system, and hardware combination. And they're perfecting it to the nth degree. But my sense is the world is moving on and having uh, having a, a stateful computer, a computer where um, there's data locally and it really matters what's going on here and there's configuration and there's state that doesn't sync, um, that's starting to feel really like the past. And the experiences we've had, even just in the time I've been trialing and, and deploying Chromebooks, that really feels like the future where, you know, as you say, data is not getting lost. It doesn't. You're not actually thinking about where the where the data physically is as such. Um, it's tied to your account. It's not tied to the physical device. All of that is an incredibly liberating model to work with because the devices then become fungible. And in a way, if you think about what happens when the device becomes fungible is you no longer start to care so much about the device. You're not so wedded to one device. And, and if you think about Apple's model, that's potentially quite a problem for Apple because as soon as the, the, the device doesn't matter so much anymore, then you know why am I spending $2,500 on a 15-inch laptop when I could get one from Acer for $500, you know? Uh, and it's a Chromebook and it's got all my stuff on it already, you know? You know, I've got a really nice Lenovo 15-inch laptop sitting beside me that cost me 600 pounds. And if I wanted to get a 15-inch laptop from Apple, I'd be paying 2,400 pounds for the entry-level model. And in a world where the data and your work gets logically separated from the computer, where then does that leave a maker of premium computers? And sure, you've got your, your Mac Pro buyers who obviously need local power and lots of it, but then there's everybody else, and, and it's really interesting going forward to see how that's going to work out, and whether or not people are still going to put a premium on, you know, quality, build, performance, all of these things, and whether Apple continues to provide all of those things, uh, that's an open question as well. But how that all works out and how it psychologically works out for users, I think, is going to be a really interesting question. You know. Fantastic. Well, what I'd like to do is check in with yeah. you in the future after you've had some time with this rollout sure. and just ask how it's going. Yeah, I'd be delighted. Yeah. In the meantime, I think we ought to wrap this up. I've kept you on quite a long time. Uh, is there a URL yeah. that, that you'd like people to go to and visit to learn more about Cedars? Um, sure. Uh, our website, which I have shamefully not updated for the new school year just yet, is uh, cedars, C-E-D-A-R-S dot Inverclyde dot S-C-H dot U-K. I'm sure you can pop that in the show notes for people who want a quick link. Great. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Um, actually, I have to chew it over. He makes some really interesting points. I had no idea about Google privacy being different, for example, in education and stuff. So I'll be fascinated to see what happens through the years with this. But terribly interesting. Yes, I'm really pleased you got him. Apple, in a unique move, has released iOS 13.1 betas for testing. What's what's unique about that? Do you know? Uh, it runs on Android? No, not, <laughs> not yet. But do we have 13.0 released yet? Oh, good point. I don't know. Okay. Uh, I'm taking from that, we don't. Right. So if we don't have iOS 13.0 released, what on earth are we doing seeing a 13.1 beta? It's just very weird. And now, it's fine. A few years ago, I'd agree with you. But now, you know, I mean, if you watch Doctor Who, the 13th Doctor is really the 15th Doctor. Uh, the 10th was the night. We're oh, fine. We, uh, we haven't got time for all that, William. The, the, the problem is this, right? Historically, we would get all of the developer betas for iOS 13, and then 13 would be released, and then we would get the 13.1 developer betas. And, and now they're not even respecting history. I think the problem is that I think Craig Federighi has too much on his plate. Okay. I think Hair Force One has a little too much to worry about. I mean, look, he's got he's shepherding Catalina. He's shepherding yes. iOS. He's shepherding iPad OS. He's shepherding Watch OS. And there's also the Apple TV OS. That's five mm. different OS releases that have to happen all pretty much at the same time on the same schedule. That's a lot. 
That's incredible. Yes, absolutely. That this happens at all is amazing. Uh, I'm always right. very impressed. And I, I think what we're is, seeing, they, I think what we're seeing is the cracks happening under pressure because it makes no sense to release 13.1 without a 13.0 released unless 13.0 is gold master and there's nothing left to do to it so they can start working on 13.1 VUG sixes. Except that if it were gold master, they would start saying it's gold master. So this is very weird that we have these these two beta paths in release at the same time. Okay, I'm less concerned about you than this. You've just offered one possible solution. I'm sure there are, there are, there's a missing episode somewhere, something we don't know, but it's fine, really. It'll all be ready for whatever day in September. I uh, mean, people are just speculating that 13.1 is actually just a mislabeled developer beta. <laughs> that it should be, it should be instead of thirteen point one, it should be thirteen point oh beta nine. But if you're going to make a typing mistake anywhere, that could be the place to make it, rather than deep in the code. So it's it's weird. It's very weird. Are you okay about it, though? Well, you know, what choice do we have? We just get to roll along until we see what actually gets released. But, I could um, make you some tea. We could have a talk. No. Is that the biggest thing going on then? Thirteen point one. I mean, it's pretty eight. big news. It's we're getting really close to this release date. Yeah, that's exciting. We expect yes. the release to be September tenth, and so we are getting quite close to it. And and uh, so yeah, it is exciting. Now we were talking education a little bit ago, and I just wanted to point out this piece about a Scottish city uh, that's Glasgow City Council and a company called CGI. They're providing 50,000 school children in the city with iPads as a part of a $369 million or 300 million pound project to modernize and improve the educational prospects for Scottish school children. I think this is very interesting, especially after someone who's had tons of experience doing that one to one rollout moving away from it. Yes, it is. But Scottish education system is very interesting. They do lots of things. I mean, I'm I'm in the UK, and Scotland's part of the UK, but I'm in England, which has very different systems, and there's an awful lot to admire in Scotland. I think there's an awful lot to admire in Scotland in general. Mm. Mm. But the, the quote here is that we want our children and young people to be equipped with the skills that will make them shine as digital citizens, both now and later in their working lives, said Glasgow City Councillor Chris Cunningham. We're aware that 90% of jobs in Scotland involve digital work, and so our pupils will be well-equipped for the workplace. I think the thing to be careful of here, to be mindful of, is that the computers of today are not the computers that will be in place in the workplace uh, 10, 15 years from now when these students will be in the workplace. That, well, some of the tasks will resemble them themselves. You know, word processing is still probably going to be word processing. Um Spreadsheets are still spreadsheets. Th th these kinds of things don't really shift a whole lot, but what is a computer and how you use it and, and what tasks you do it for and what tasks compose a job change rapidly and, and quickly and, and, uh, and, and in large ways, right? It used to be before the advent of, of Lotus 1-2-3 that if you wanted a spreadsheet showing you data, you would make a request and then the seventh floor of the office building would get to work on that with huge, huge blotter paper and figuring it out. And then they would present you with a spreadsheet of paper with all the cells filled in by hand kind of thing about a month later. So busy calc started. Yes. Yeah. So destruction all over the world. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And and so the these things change. But it's intriguing to see that they're going iPad um, in the face of the things that Mr. Spears, who we just spoke with, has learned. Mm. I suppose it's uh, is that the democratization of technology. You pick with what whatever works for you the best. And for his case, he's found it in Chromebook. They're finding it in iPads. It's just great that there are these systems available. So. Well, it, what happens in, in, what's happened in the past is that every few years, a different school district tries a one-to-one -one program of some kind. Like early, early, early on, there was the iBook program in Enrico County, Virginia, where they distributed iBooks to students. And it was a complete cluster, to be honest, because there, there was a real problem with managing what students were able to do, what students should be doing, and and even just how to integrate this thing into the curriculum properly. And so 
you know, it's one thing to say, we're going to roll out a 300 million pound project for iPads. Great. How are teachers going to use that in terms of curriculum? How are students going to use that in ways that ensure that they're not just using it as another entertainment device? And that's that's where this comes down is the implementation. You know, it's it's easy to cheerlead and fanboy and say, iPads, oh, 50,000 of them out there in the school. Wonderful. That's great for Apple. Yeah, it is. It really is great for Apple. But what's going to support their use in in a in a real learning environment is a question. Well, let's, let's not turn this into a bad thing. 50,000 iPads in a school is better than nothing in the school. Yes, it has issues of support, and it's always, always going to be down to the teachers and how they use things, how they teach. Uh, but this is a good thing, giving teachers some options. So. Well, I, what I would like to say is I think we should find out more about it. We should try and watch that closely and see if there's something we can learn from what they're doing in their rollout that makes it different from some past experiences we've seen. Cool. That makes sense. Absolutely. Let's keep an eye on all of these things. Yeah. Now, Apple, we've talked about Apple before, is planning to improve Siri's privacy protections. Yeah, I was particularly interested in this one because uh, they did that thing of, uh, I think even you told me about this, that people were listening uh, to Siri recordings to make it better. And then they stopped and they stopped saying they're pending a review of their process. Everybody pending review of process, they never actually do anything. And Apple has actually done it. Well, actually, all of the companies that have voice products so far, the big ones, Google, Facebook, uh, Amazon, have said that they're stopping human listening, human grading. And so they've, they've said they have done something, right? They said they stopped. Apple said they stopped. But before they stopped, what they were doing was reviewing a small sample of audio from Siri requests, less than 0.2%, and the computer-generated transcripts to measure how well Siri was responding to improve its reliability. Did the user intend to wake Siri? Did Siri hear the request accurately? Did Siri respond appropriately to the request? And and what's happened is that they're going to change things a little bit. Users will be able to opt in to help Siri improve. Those who choose to participate can opt out again at any time. Apple won't retain audio recordings and will continue to use computer-generated transcripts. When customers do opt in, only Apple employees will be allowed to listen, not contractors. Mm, Interesting. And... This one's a little iffy for me. Apple will work to delete, quote-unquote, any recording which is determined to be an inadvertent trigger. Right. I'm not clear what that means. That well, I mean, if, if you say Syria, and Siri goes, yeah, I'm here, that's an inadvertent no, trigger. But, but I'm not sure what work to delete means. Well, what about the fact that my HomePod has such good hearing that wherever I am in the house, it responds to the magic words. I could be looking at my watch when I say it, and I hear this distant thing from my eyes. It's quite That's a slightly different problem, but still a problem, yes. It's in, in, on an inadvertent trigger of the wrong Siri. So maybe it's just that it's more finer tuned than uh, always deleting it, because sometimes the definition of inadvertent might be different. Yeah, That's well, so the, the good news here is that there's going to be some more clarity involved. The, you know, yes, there will still be human review, but you don't have to have it. You can opt out of that. So that's interesting. I I think that there's still a lot of room for Apple to improve here, and I think they could do better than this, but it's good that they're doing this. Um, I will opt in. Um, If I even think about it, I won't bother to opt out. I'm not so fussed about this. I think whenever you say something like 0.2%, I start thinking, that's probably quite a big number. Whenever they only say a percent, they're exaggerating it up or down kind of thing. Yeah. So it's probably huge, and they've probably heard me going wrong. But, you know, it's Apple. I'm at least convinced they're not going off and selling my uh, swearing at Siri to other companies when necessary. Yep. Apple, in other things that they're going to do that are good, plans to contribute funds to ongoing efforts in the Amazon so you've heard about this, right? In in Brazil, there are the Amazon forests that are on fire. Yes, astounding. Yes, and those that's the reason why this is dangerous is because those forests produce a decent amount of of uh, oxygen, which are, is necessary for human life. And, yes, and so I've read about it. Yes, it's so. it's really it's not just about you know the the notion that we we like forests and forests and animals are nice and preserving biodiversity is fun. It's this is actually like really necessary. These are indispensable forests, 
And so it's not exactly clear how Apple intends to assist, but it looks like they're donating funds directly to local nonprofits or emergency service organizations working to fight the fires. I wonder how much you can actually do with fire. I mean, how quickly you can repair the damage, even how quickly you can grow replacements. Well, the, uh, the problem is that even if you grow replacement trees, that when there are, there are a couple of different things going on here. First of all, there are indigenous people living within the forests who will be harmed by this. And secondly, there are animals that will be harmed, wildlife that will be harmed that doesn't come back. There's, there's yeah. some, you know, yes, you can reforest. And if you reforest 20 years later, some wildlife comes back, but some of it just goes extinct. Some of it, you just, that's it. Goodness. And so this is problematic. Um, it is it is good to see Apple using some of their cash largesse to do things like this that don't necessarily relate directly to bottom line, but do absolutely affect all of us. Yeah, makes uh, things like meeting deadlines for iOS seem a little bit less uh, important, doesn't it? Perhaps, perhaps. Well, that's the time we have. I, I want to make sure that we cut this close so that you've got enough time to listen to the interview. Thank you so much. This has been Victor. I'm VMarks on Twitter and Victor at AppleInsider.com. William, where do people find you? Still working on Keyboard Maestro and I and having a very good time, but also on Twitter as William. Uh, no, hang on. Twitter is W Gallagher. <laughs> Email is William at AppleInsider.com. Where else would I go? Uh, to Tav T. That's what you do. All right. We'll be back next week with more. Next week's going to be a really interesting episode to pull together. But no matter how we do it, we're looking forward to having you back then. We'll see you then. <laughs>